Pastor Micah is away, uh, as you probably know. And so a little while ago, he asked if I would um, preach this morning. And occasionally, uh, Pastor Micah, Lee, and I commute to Vanguard College together. And uh, for about three hours on that day, uh, typically once a week, we talk, we encourage each other. Uh, we try to confuse Lee about the lectures that he heard by telling, about, telling him about uh, uh, other viewpoints. Um, but we do listen to each other's concerns, dreams, and disappointments. Several weeks ago, uh, we talked through Daniel 4 and 5, and I think uh, Pastor Micah was hoping that uh, Lee and I uh, would be on the same page uh, as, as he is in this sermon. And uh, he built an incredibly good foundation uh, in those first two uh, sermons that he uh, preached in which we are remembering that no matter what, we serve a God who is in control when we are not. And so uh, last week, uh, Lee helped us uh, to see through King Nebuchadnezzar's um, own words that God can take the mightiest world leader uh, down to the level of a wild beast who has no rational capacities or the ability even to communicate to others around him. And in a very ironic way, uh, in the words of the king, chapter 4, verse 17, uh, he describes how God had judged his massive ego with a court decision and sentencing. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest and sets over it the lowliest of men. And many, many scholars point out that Structurally, this particular verse is the main point of chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel. And it's my hope that after looking at chapter 5, we'll know in yet one more way that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men, gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. And it's also my hope that you'll then know uh, how that will inform you in how you should respond to God so that you're not working at cross purposes to what God is doing in this world. What we need to catch is that God himself appoints our rulers. I may not like it, but the fact is that Prime Minister Trudeau is God's choice. And that ought to bring me, as Lee said, a sense of peace. Why? Well, we'll take a look at the structure of this particular passage. And then after we understand what is being set up, uh, we'll read the passage 
and I hope that the emotional impact of it will help you to understand why we don't have to in any way be worried because God is in total control of everything. And so let's just uh, remember a little bit about the structure. Um, if we can go to the next slide. I'm uh, fumbling around with this, but anyway. So if we take a look at the book of Daniel, it's a very fascinating structure because it begins uh, in the language that the Hebrew people spoke, and then it switches uh, in chapters 2 through 6 to Aramaic, or to 7, which would have been the language of the people of Babylon. And then it switches back again uh, to what the Hebrews uh, people would understand. And it is very, very interesting because when you go to the library, you rarely pick up a book that is in two different languages. Uh, you pretty much have to be bilingual in order to be able to read it and to understand it. And uh, the way that most uh, prophetic books work is that there's um, usually a message of judgment and then there's a message of hope. Um, and so I think it's important that we recognize that most likely chapters two through six were meant to primarily say uh, to the Babylonians, judgment is coming to you or has come to you at times and there's hope for the Israelite people. And then it's further explained in uh, the rest of the book, um, which we will be taking a look at. But the structure uh, of chapters two through seven is very uh, fascinating. It's what is called a chiasm. And it's much like a pyramid. Uh, you have chapters two, and seven have the same theme. Chapters three and six have the same theme. And then chapters four and five uh, have the same theme to them. And even though they're a little bit different, uh, we need to understand that because it's not as if each chapter has a new idea. The other thing about chiasm is that really the primary point is the one in the middle, um, chapters four and five. And so uh, last week we understood uh, that God can bring the most powerful leader in the whole world to a place of repentance. That's why we don't need to worry. And we can understand and we can follow along as how that all happened. Well, time goes on, Nebuchadnezzar is not still on the speech or on the throne of the king, but we don't need to fear. God is still paying attention. And uh, through this particular situation, we realize that God is at work, much like we sang in, in our worship together. And so as we get into chapter five, 
There's a number of things that we need to pay attention. We also have a chiastic structure. We have a banquet, and then we have the evaluation of the banquet. We have the queen or queen mother who comes to lecture Belshazzar. Daniel, on the other side, lectures Belshazzar. And then at the very center part of it, Belshazzar has his turn to talk. And normally you would expect that what Belshazzar has to say would be the showcase. That's marvelous. That's really what you want to pay attention to. But actually what we have happening is he has nothing significant to say. He's shown to be a complete fake. And everything else is building up to this. So just in terms of a bit of con uh, context, at the beginning of this chapter, Babylon is surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar's father was really the king, but he left uh, to go fight this army and he was defeated. And so Belshazzar takes over as a co-regent. And uh, obviously he feels very secure behind this massive wall in Babylon. And he feels there's nothing much he has to really do except make sure that all of his people aren't too worried. You see, they had the Babylon River, massive river that was flowing through it. They were rich. They had lots of food. He figured probably that they could withstand a siege for years and years and years. Nobody would be able to uh, take them down. And so likely he's wanting to boost the morale of the people and he does it with a swagger. He scoffs at the army that's coming against them. And in the previous few weeks, he goes around to all the neighboring towns and some of them had the treasures of the nations that they had conquered, Babylon had conquered, and he mocks their gods and brings to Babylon the most sacred pieces of um, worship uh, from each of these nations. And the whole intent of that is to, say, to basically say, your gods can't do a thing to help you because Babylon is the greatest. So at this point, he, uh, and, and part of that is he's saying, and I can scoff, and there will be absolutely no repercussion, no judgment, because your gods are impotent. Well, tonight, he wants to reassure everyone, they probably have seen, that uh, there's a massive army outside. And so he decides that he's gonna gather everybody together. They're gonna have a grand banquet. And as he gets started, uh, he decides to go one step further and he calls for the most holy objects of the Hebrew temple to be brought out. And they were going to do something rather unholy they're going to drink wine and there is all sorts of debauchery that was going to happen. Uh, this would have been an incredible 
um, way in which you would be degrading the Israelite God. But as he's working or making this happen, Yahweh does respond, and there's a hand that uh, writes something on the wall, and all of a sudden, Belshazzar isn't quite so arrogant. In fact, the way that it's uh, really talked about there, uh, he can hardly stand up. Uh, the way that it's talked about is uh, he may have actually um, not been able to control almost anything uh, in his body because of the incredible fear that he feels. Furthermore, um, he can't read the judgment. He can't fight it off because he doesn't know what it is. And so about all that he can do is call for his wise men, his astrologers, his Chaldeans, uh, to read the words and to interpret them. They can't. So there is another humiliation. Now, the queen, um, well, the word in Aramaic could mean queen or queen's mother. And obviously, it wasn't his wife because the text is very clear that the wives and concubines were there. So she wasn't even there, but she comes in and uh, she says in some rather interesting ways, um, Belshazzar, if you'd listen to your father, <laughs> you would know that Daniel is a man who can um, interpret this dream. She doesn't use the name that the king Nebuchadnezzar had given, she uses Daniel, which I think is furthermore a way of saying to this king, uh, you're scoffing the Hebrew God, but it's one of the Hebrews who can tell you what the judgment will be. I don't know what it's like for you, but as a grown man, you know, to have your mother come and school you, uh, when you're trying to impress everyone, uh, doesn't exactly uh, add to your sense of um, being uh, competent. And, and not only that, but what she has to say, anyone who reads this book could have told you, if you want somebody to interpret the dream, well, it's obviously Daniel, because everyone knew that. And so here this scoffing, pompous king has no idea about what the common person on the street could have told him without a second thought. Anyway, uh, Daniel is called for and he um, is uh, greeted by the king, but the king is trying to save face. He's trying to impress everyone but it's not working. And he says some things, but they're just really not um, all that uh, convincing. I think pretty much at the banquet, uh, everybody knows that the king is in deep, deep trouble. And as he tries to appear like 
He's got everything under control. He's just digging a deeper and deeper hole. Then, so that's the apex. And then you have Daniel. When he comes, he just further confirms it with humiliation after humiliation. He says, keep keep your prizes. I'll tell you for free. Um, Besides, whatever you have to give me is worthless. Uh, Because at the end, Belshazzar doesn't even last the night. He's killed that night. So, you know, to try and please the king would have been of no avail. But he uh, tells him all of the things that are going to happen. And then you have this evaluation. The evaluation is simple. The banquet was a wash. It was a complete failure. The handwriting on the wall is bringing judgment because God will not be mocked. You want to scoff God? There will be repercussions. And then the uh, evaluation of the king's honors, well, Daniel wasn't at all pleased, but what we have is the king is going to do that. He obviously has no level of repentance. And then we have this very simple epilogue saying that everything that Belshazzar had was taken away from him that night. So I'm going to call Lee and my wife and uh, myself, and we're going to read this passage. Uh, I hope that you can, having thought about the structure, uh, be able to feel the impact uh, of how this is presented. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lord, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. The king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, and they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. The king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, 
O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king of the, my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you give an interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and, and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold put around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Let your gifts be for yourself, O king. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that the Most High gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house you have brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whom, whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene. Tekel and Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided 
and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, and he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You see, Belshazzar really depended upon intimidation. But when you understand that it's God who gave even the most wicked ruler the power to do whatever he wants, you don't need to be intimidated at all. Why? Because in just a few hours, God can depose that king, tear up his kingdom, divide it up, give it to somebody else. And in fact, it seems to me that uh, one of the things that's very significant uh, in the Old Testament writings is this idea that we should never be intimidated even if you're in Babylon. Psalm 2, uh, and I'm not going to read all of it, but it's why do the wicked rage and plot against the God of heaven? Because God laughs. He's not threatened. And he can depose them with just a couple of words. And your response and my response is to look at them and not ever be intimidated because intimidation leads to either capitulation or fight. See, you don't have to fight them because God is the one at the right time who's going to change everything. You don't want to go ahead of him. And you certainly don't want to be going against what God is doing. And so our response is to then say to our enemies, kiss the sun, get right with the sun. Like Nebuchadnezzar did. Because you have nothing to fear. You don't need to be intimidated at all. Eugene Peterson says that uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are kind of like the pillars. If you understand these two ideas, number one, meditate on God's word day and night. Like Daniel, who purposed in his heart not to defile himself. He read the scriptures. He prayed. Personal piety was important. But the second, don't for a minute be intimidated by the world system. God is totally in control. And for heaven's sake, don't try to do God's job. <laughs> you don't have the resources, neither do you have the wisdom. So let God do what he's going to do. 
and then take the opportunity when it comes. Because you see, when Daniel was called, it was all set up. And then he could tell the king, you've been found wanting, judgment is coming, and I sure don't want any of your worthless um, bling, because it doesn't mean anything anyway. Um, that's the way we conquer evil around us. You know, most of us, I think, at the end of the day, run into trouble because we don't truly believe that God's in control of everything. If we did, we wouldn't worry. Oh, we might have some white knuckles, uh, but like the person getting on an airplane who believes the airplane will get there, they might have some anxiety when they go over turbulence and, and other things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, they know they're going to get there. That's why they got on the airplane. And it might be a rough ride. But you can trust your God. There's no need for counter-revolutions. There's no need for big protests. You keep worshiping, as Daniel did, as we'll find out in the next story. But I think at the core of everything, make sure you're not intimidated. Keep this image in mind. You see, the Babylonians had these incredibly huge structures and huge ceremonies and huge celebrations to intimidate people. Well, you can watch it and see it go on, but every day you worship and you know God is even greater, far greater. You don't capitulate. You look for opportunity. And when God gives you the red flag, or the green flag, the green light, then go ahead. Now, the fascinating thing to me is this story of Babylon. Um, <clears throat> who really ended up running the country? Daniel and his three friends. With Joseph in Egypt, who ended up running the country? <laughs> you see, all these people who think they're so powerful at the end of the day are just figureheads. So you don't need to be afraid of them. Seek to bless them. Work hard. God knows. He'll work things out. And that's how we're to live when we're exiles in Babylon. Hopefully, Part of the message is hopefully the Nebuchadnezzars will see and they'll repent. But if they don't, the Belshazzars will be swept away like just so much dust. Fascinating to me that uh, his replacement, the Medes and the Persians, actually helped the Israelites rebuild the walls in the temple, <laughs> they paid for what would have been absolutely impossible for them to do. Uh, rebuilt 
And you see, God can move the king's heart. You don't have to worry about all that stuff. Put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all will be well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you remind us with, with this incredibly powerful story that you can humble who you will humble and you will lift up those that you want to lift up. Help us never to be afraid so that we capitulate and do what the culture around us is doing and help us not to be threatened so that we fight and try and take over, but help us to walk humbly with you, wait for your timing, learn the lessons that you want us to learn, and may we always have that hope that you are building your kingdom. You will triumph, and we will be working hard to bring your kingdom into fruition. And because of that, we can live in peace, we can live in shalom because of your great power. And so we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.